Welcome in everyone to our weekly hoon. This is New Zealand Over the Horizon. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka, and we have Peter Bale with us who writes a weekly email for the spin-off, uh, the Weekly World Bulletin. Peter, great to see you. Bernard, you've got a fabulous quiff going on there. I see you. Oh, <laughs> that's right. It's my lockdown quiff. Yeah. yeah. Very, it's very it's, it's very the one. Yeah, yeah, it's the one you get when you sleep twice a day. Yeah, I heard you got a question to the Prime Minister today. Yeah, I wanted to know whether or not there'd be a complete cessation of all flights to New Zealand. Mm. This was something that the epidemiologists from Otago, Michael Baker, Nick Wilson, suggested last week. It surprised me a bit, but it's interesting because at the moment, we're at the edge of capacity for MIQ, and certainly our contact traces are well behind catching up on all the contacts. And if you were really feeling overwhelmed and you wanted to have a circuit breaker as well as level four lockdowns, then you could close off the borders utterly from flights. Mm. Uh, the PM said basically she had no plans to do that and it was very difficult because there were all sorts of other things being flown in, not the least of which is vaccines. Yeah. And we're due, due to run out within a few weeks at the rate we're going at, nearly 90,000 today. And she said no, and also from a legal point of view, we have to let our citizens return. Although if you're one of those citizens who can't get an MIQ voucher... And then you already feel as though you're not being allowed to return, which um, somebody we both know is telling me. I'm not sure I agree with it. But Bernard, we, we were going to start with Afghanistan, but why don't we go straight into COVID because it must be on people here's top of mind and then we'll do, do Afghanistan. Does that make sense? Because I, I was struck this week, you wrote something about, I don't really, stories with, head, with questions in the headlines, but <laughs> is this the end of elimination? And you, you've asked that to today in a sense with her as well. And somebody also suggested to me yesterday that they reckon they'd picked up a difference in view on this from between Chris Hipkins and Jacinda Ardern. I'm not sure that's true, but what do you think? Yeah, I think Chris Hipkins probably said more than he should in that Q&A interview with Jack Tame on Sunday. It seemed to change the tone of the discussion because it seemed to suggest the government was opening to ending elimination because of the change with Delta. Now, the problem is the PM has to be very hardcore on elimination right now because you need no doubt when you're yep. trying to fight this thing off. It's the fight of our lives, really, and uh, we have to be no, no doubts. However, it has to be asked, given the situation we're in, we have a MIQ system and an emergency care system, ICU system, which basically cannot handle. This is one of the things I wanted to address as well, Bernard. It's just, it's not actually possible to deal with it at the scale that it would instantly get to. That's right. And the worrying thing is that it looks like at the moment, even if we were to get over, let's say 90%, then we would still have major problems with it. And I suspect that's why the Prime Minister has not set a particular target, because 90% sounds very high, but there are places that have done it. And the most interesting case I've found, uh, I was actually checking during the press conference, Iceland yeah, got... Zero got cases. So yeah, actually, no, that's the thing. So 97% of women are vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Over 90% of men are vaccinated in Iceland. Women are more sensible than men, as usual. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that meant that Iceland, having got to 90%, decided to open up a bit more. Mm. Not completely. So if you're unvaccinated and you, and you fly into Iceland to have a look at all the geysers, you have to stay in quarantine for five days until you've had enough tests to show that you haven't got it, and then you can go out. And uh, Icelanders who come back and are from overseas uh, or they've got a work visa or something, they have to show they've been vaccinated and they don't have it with a fast test. So it's not exactly open door. 
Also, they have all sorts of restrictions on what you can do there. You can't have events of more than 200 people. There's not much movement between bubbles. There's mask wearing in public and in any sort of private um, outside your mm. bubble. So it's pretty restricted. Mm. They've had a wave of cases go through the community in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, over not 100... had anything for, for a very similar period to New Zealand. That's right. Yep. And over 100 cases, and they had their first death yesterday, mm. and they've got significant numbers in ICU. So this is the, the sort of... I think we're engaging a bit of magical thinking here, which is that just like last time, we can have a short and sharp lockdown and then we can open up completely, that we can have the same size of MIQ and we can move on. With Delta, as we've seen, we had four days of transmission before yeah. the lockdown. And then in that 48 hours where we all had to get into our bubbles, there was this explosion of people out of Auckland. Yeah, yeah. And we're, going to, we're going to have to, you know, it's going to be level 2.5, really. The I disagree with possibly even you and certainly Mark Dalder on this. That I don't like the coercion about checking and, and mask wearing because I think nudge has worked quite well in New Zealand. But clearly with Delta, I do understand why they forced that. I just, I get very nervous when I see the scale of anti-vax protests and stuff and anti-lockdown protests in the UK where the police have been used far too much in my view. But I was just looking again at the figures that we sometimes look at for the UK, and there's 140 deaths, daily deaths. The death rate is running at 140. And of course, that would be about a dozen if it were us. And I just can't, I can't see that being politically sustainable. And there are 7,000 people going into hospital every day and 38,000 cases. Even if you divide that by, the, by our much smaller population, it is an extraordinary level of health damage from COVID to be, to be coping with. And it won't get, it'll get worse as soon as we get into autumn. That's right. And so at the moment, the public, more than seven in 10, according to the Sticky Beak poll, want yeah. to stick with elimination, stick with tight borders. The problem is, let's say this is successful in two weeks time, Auckland goes out of level four, goes to level three. The rest of us who stay in level four until Tuesday and then go into, you know, level three for a time. We're talking about a month at level four for Auckland and then, you know, probably yep. another month at level three for Auckland. So we're talking a couple of months of severe restrictions. And then once we, in theory, relax again, all it takes is one case at the mm. border and we have to go into lockdown for another month. Yeah. So what we're looking at here, until in theory very vaccinated, we're looking at elimination with no real prospect of change, progressive lockdowns every time that there's a case. And at the moment, until the middle of next year, we're looking at being basically locked down for another well, six to so 12 months. That's probably quite a likely scenario, isn't it, Bernard? Because the border's gonna to have to be a little bit tighter. The daily practices are going to have to be a little bit tighter if we're going to avoid it. So where does all this speculation come from this week? Is it just journalists being pernickety? Because I, I noticed a spin-off had a very good piece today about, please don't blame the journalists, we're just holding the government to account. But a hell of a lot of people, not not unreasonably in some cases, said, but you go, all you guys want to do is issue hot, hot takes. Even you were being accused of a hot take by questioning whether elimination could last. And really, you were just raising the question, and it most certainly was not a hot take. Yeah, it was a 2,500 word yeah. hot take. Yeah, Sometimes uh, it's easier to write 2,000 words than it is to write 500, uh, but uh, yeah. True, true. I think the mood was changed firstly by Chris Hipkins' mm. comments in that Q&A interview. And then the very next day, Scott Morrison basically launched yeah. a week-long campaign to say elimination is over in Australia. We've got to get to 70% and we've got to open up. Yeah, also over the week- unhelpful, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of people in Australia who don't accept it. So all yeah. of those Labour states, Western Australia, 
Australia, Victoria, Queensland are going, hey, you're not my Prime Minister. We're doing elimination. Bugger off, mate. And then they lock the door, the borders even harder. Yeah, I'm not sure that he and Gladys uh, Berejiklian could have done a worse job of all this, actually, really. Well, yeah, that'll be interesting to see whether they get to wear the political heat that comes out of it. No talk of any sort of uh, snap election later this year, which Scott Morrison was talking about earlier this year. But so that that changed the equation. And also, I think there's a lot of New Zealanders who have a lot of contacts with family and friends in Australia. And the mood in Australia is very different, whereas seven and 10 here want to stay with elimination. It's more like seven and 10 want to get rid of elimination Mm -hmm. in Australia, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria. And those protests over the weekend, I don't know if you saw some of the coverage where you had hundreds of people on the street with no masks. Here you get the, to be frank, the complete nutters, 10 or 12 ragtag or anti-vax conspiracy theorists. Over there, there are a lot of people, what you'd call more mm-hmm. representative spread of the population who are there. And I know from um, speaking to my brother and some various other contacts there, in Victoria in particular, they are absolutely exhausted because they've been in virtual lockdown for nine months. Yeah. And in New South Wales, they never really bought into the lockdown thing and thought they could get away with it. And now it's rather inconvenient and they want to get out of it. Mm. In fact, Gladys Berejiklian this afternoon decided to open up the schools again from the end of October. Yeah, saw that. I wonder, Bernard, how much of this is also to do with media. You've got a very heavy, heavily heavy influence from Rupert Murdoch through Sky Australia and through The Australian and the various other papers. And Nine Australia is not averse to being quite conservative on television, at least. That's um, right. I, I just, mean, that, I mean is, is there, is there, is there, uh, they, and they also certainly don't have a prime minister or a state governor who is as uh, coherent as um, Jacinda Ardern has been. Whether we have fatigue about being kind and the five million, her coherence continues to be astounding. And the, her, and she did it again today. The grasp of detail was remarkable. Yeah, no, she's been on the top form at the lectern in the last couple of weeks. You're right about News Corporation. So News Corp with those two main tabloid papers in Sydney and Melbourne, The Australian, which never makes any money, but does an awful lot of reporting yeah. and grumping about the ABC. It's out there. You've got Sky News more at the fox end of the spectrum at night in particular, ranting away. And also, as you say, you've got seven and nine in particular who are also very conservative yeah. on the spectrum. Well, I, just, to, just, sorry. just imagine how different New Zealand would have been if Murdoch had stayed here. He That's left right. in 1990. Right. I, was, I was really struck. There's a, a, a woman who I follow on Twitter who I think is a barrister, actually, or possibly an economist, Emma Vitz, who you may know, who did, put a fantastic chart up this week about traffic congestion between New Zealand and Australia and how the, you know, to show how the lockdown had worked. And they really, it was remarkable how disciplined and clearly much firmer the lockdowns were. I'll just post that onto our chat, actually. But I also see, Bernard, that Steve Voicey has asked about misinformation on the Q&A in the Zoom. And he also refers to David Farrier. Now, I was very struck by a piece that David Farrier, who has the Webworm blog, did this week about the Brian Tamaki Destiny Church and the other, whatever Brian Tamaki's one is called, the extraordinary spread of uh, covid And I'm going to call it disinformation because misinformation is the accidental spread of bad information. Disinformation is deliberate. And I think we know it's been deliberate through quite a few of those people. And that, in my opinion, Steve, if you're still there, is particularly risky because of the high preponderance of Maori and Pacifica people in those churches and in those evangelical settings. And we know from various cases that, and some excellent um, academic work, that Maori and Pacifica are much more vulnerable to misinformation and to, and to conspiracy theories than, than the rest of us. 
Yeah, one of the most interesting um, pieces of uh, research that I've seen in the last wee while was from NZ On Air, looking at the viewing yeah. habits of Māori and Pacifica, particularly Māori and Pacifica youth, during the lockdown last year. And the level of time and focus on um, video, and in particular YouTube and Facebook, was stunning and, and higher than the rest of the community. There isn't a lot of engagement with the TV1 6 o'clock news or even the TV3 6 o'clock yeah. news or certainly not RNZ, maybe a bit of stuff in NZ Herald, but actually... And probably some TikTok. Yeah, exactly. Most of that information is coming from Facebook and Google. It's been good actually in the last week to see that stuff has decided to get back on to... I think that's really critical. I think that countering, countering, I don't accept that good information, unfortunately, washes out bad, but, you, but it is, you've got to have it on the same platform, I think. I was really yeah. struck this morning when a, a relative of mine who I've had a debate with about vaccine and who I'm very concerned about said to me, why is saline even in there? Why are they using saline at all? Are they doing it to deliberately dilute it so they've got more of it because they're because these fools are running out? And I just thought, where are you getting your information? And of course, it's Peter Williams as part of is is where he gets some of its information and uh, a bunch of rather dodgy newsletters. But anyway, shall we move on to Afghanistan? Although John, John Ashton, John Ashton's got a question there, Bernard, about vaccination rate of seventy one percent. And did the sources you read specify the age of those getting infected and are they children? Yeah, that's interesting. It's true that the people who are ending up in hospital are tending to be the older ones and the ones who haven't been vaccinated, the very few who haven't. And that will be, and we have this particular issue now where obviously we've, we're about to start vaccinating properly the 12 to 15 year olds, but we still don't have approval to vaccinate under 12. And for the Prime Minister to credibly drop the elimination strategy, we have to have an answer to that question. What about my unvaccinated kids? Because Delta is certainly infecting them. And in Australia, there's been one death, I think. And one of the cases here in New Zealand is a nine-month-old. We've got one person in ICU today. We don't know the age or where they've come from or whether they're being vaccinated or not. But uh, that's another reason why I think this elimination strategy, a lot of people think, oh, well, it'll just be a month of lockdown and we'll go back to normal and we can yeah, keep the It's not going to be the same strategy. normal. It's going to be a different normal. It's going to be six to 12 months of yeah. in and out of lockdown until we have to make that really hard call about how high is high enough for our vaccination rates and whether or not it includes our or not to 12-year-olds. Yeah. But so, um, shall we move on to the Afghanistan crisis yes, please, and this yes. awful bomb attack? Now, I have to mm. admit something awful, which is that when I saw all this warning last night that an attack was imminent, I thought that was possibly what Australians might call a furphy, which it was an attempt to actually just diminish the crowds at the um, airport. Of course, I was completely wrong. They did have intelligence that the ISIS Khorasan Brigade was planning an attack. And of course, we've now had this absolutely awful uh, pair of suicide bombings at the airport. What I was struck by, or one of the many things I was struck by in this was, um, this is the worst set of American casualties since, two, since 2011, so in 10 years, when 38 people were killed in a uh, Chinook helicopter crash, also in Afghanistan. And it's the first military death in Afghanistan since February 2020. Really? So this idea wow. that we were losing, that the United States, I'm sorry, was losing lives all the time is not entirely true. And one of the arguments from even sensible military analysts, not just you know, hot-headed, hot-take journalists, is that the either the extraction or the extended, further extended negotiations with the Taliban could have been carried out with relatively few troops deployed in the field. And yet, of course, 
we, we must acknowledge that Trump capitulated entirely. That uh, thing I do for the newsletter, I do for the spinoff makes that absolutely clear. There's a quote in that from, from HR McMaster just saying that we completely surrendered. And that is, of course, the situation Biden is now dealing with. But I, I would argue he's dealing with it incredibly badly. There's a quote in a Guardian story this week from a, somebody who had a visa, apparently had a visa, couldn't get into the airport. Quotes, I never, and this is an Afghan, quotes, I never want to get to the airport again. Death to America, it's evacuation and visas. This is not winning friends and influencing people. And it is, there's, what did I write down before this? Right now, there's 60, 60 Af- Afghans dead and 140 injured. 13 new servicemen killed in this attack. And now, of course, everybody's pulled out pretty much. The Americans and the British are still... Weirdly, of course, the British also evacuated several hundred dogs and cats, apparently after an invitation, after the Prime Minister's wife, Carrie, insisted that the mission be done after the Defence Minister, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, had said, you know, essentially over his dead body, that's, it may well be. It is just, I thought that was the most extraordinary sort of tabloidist kind of reaction. Um, and Joe Biden's reaction, I see Charles has asked about that, vowing, I'm going to hunt them down. Yeah. I was really disappointed to see that. He has to say something like that, doesn't he? But I think the difficulty with it is this is pretty much what got us there all this kind of fake cowboy sheriff talk. We've already had one B-movie actor in in the White House. And I'm afraid I find Biden lacks credibility in this. I do worry about some of the health issues he's got, i.e. being old. But his whole thing today of tying it back to his own son and his own son's experience was an attempt at empathy but I just feel it didn't really capture the, the gravity of the situation. And to have all this language like, we will make you pay, this is George W. Bush nonsense. It is playing to an American audience and they will, and they'll fire off some cruise missiles and some send some drones in. But they've been trying to get the leadership and the members of the ISIS Khorasan Brigade for uh, a very long time. These guys moved into Afghanistan a long time ago. They've got an area carved out against the Taliban to some extent. And of course, the Taliban are opposed to them. They're just another indication of what a shit fight Afghanistan promises to become. And uh, he really doesn't have any options to do much. There's no appetite in America for another war in Afghanistan. He's not going to go back in. He won't have any any partners. NATO is absolutely shocked at how badly this was handled. And it will damage America's reputation with its allies. And for New Zealand and Australia... We, in theory, are with the Americans on security in this competition with uh, China. And I must say, it hasn't, it hasn't really bolstered my confidence that the Americans will have our backs if it ever gets... Absolutely. Quiet. Yeah. yeah. I've talked about that from here. But yes, I think it is absolutely extraordinary how badly this has been handled, particularly for the damage on the various allies. I, I think they will lash out, Bernard. I think there will be some symbolic. You, <clears throat> you might remember that Trump, relatively shortly before before going out of office, used what's called the Moab, the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan, which was just essentially using the largest bomb that's ever been made, other than nuclear weapons, as, as a PR gesture. And I suspect, fear, we, we may see something very similar. There's also some very good stories out today about the consequence of this, of the amount of weaponry that the Taliban now have. There's a some terrific video emerged of a Black Hawk helicopter being driven up and down on the ground as somebody from the uh, Taliban nice. appears to learn how to drive the damn thing. <laughs> you know, but there are something like 200 aircraft, uh, you know, hundreds of armored vehicles and God knows what. Plus, of course, the uh, data. They have the data on everyone who was working, 
for the Afghan government, it is going to be an absolutely harrowing, harrowing prospect for the people left behind. And I I was talking to you before, I've heard some extraordinary stories. There have been remarkable stories of people getting through, but I know somebody who got eight people out and they were gotten out by the special forces of a country that I won't mention because they're still there, possibly not the UK or the US, who went out into Kabul, found these, this family with a pre-agreed meeting point and a pre-agreed symbol, which is drawings done by the children. They were able to show them in the closed palm of their hands to, to be validators as the people they were trying to pick up and they were rescued. And that's a, that's a really a journalistic group of people or a, the dependence of, of, of a journalistic group of people. But there's a lot of people being left behind as, as Jacinda Ardern said today as well. Yes, and we got one flight out, and uh, but there are hundreds of New Zealand citizens, and not to mention all the, tr- the translators and various others who are left. And there will be uh, some sort of post-mortem into what's happened, particularly in the last couple of years, with all of the requests for visas that were refused by New Zealand. Uh, re- there was a bunch of people in Afghanistan who had helped our troops who came back in 2012. There are, of course, a lot of refugees with the Tampa mm-hmm. ship who the Australians wouldn't live in, so we took them, many of whom came from Afghanistan. But since 2012, we haven't really pulled our weight in, in accepting not only refugees from Afghanistan, but also those who helped our troops. And there, there is a real bitterness amongst those connected mm. to the defence forces here about the way that those people have been treated. You can well, have- I noticed also that there were people who had helped the Operation Burnham Inquiry. And in a sense, that's the, I I listened the other day, there was an absolute edition of the detail with Emile Donovan and uh, Nikki Hager explaining what Burnham was, explaining it, and it was very good, or explaining what the New Zealand involvement in Afghanistan can be. So I can recommend another podcast other than ours, which is the detail. But those people who helped us with Burnham were helping with helping us with an extremely important accounting of justice. It wasn't just not, not I'm, I'm not trying to I am actually in a way trying to draw a distinction between interpreters and people who, who supported the military, but people who stuck their neck out to help us investigate that particular case or that particular set of cases. That's a remarkable thing to have left them behind. And I think we owe them something. Yeah. And for mm-hmm. Nikki and John Stevenson, who exposed the poor horrible Behavior. decisions yeah, yeah. That, that were made there and then were told that this was not true and didn't happen eventually operation the investigation found that it did but to get there they had to expose those people and i can't imagine how nikki and yeah. john are feeling not to mention Absolutely. all of those people in the defense forces who were cheering uh, that quest for justice on and i'm um it's a horrible exercise. That's why I think we, we've been right over the last couple of weeks to focus on Afghanistan, even though there's no real trade implications or no, much. Well, so, much. You know, I'm not, yeah. G- George Tiley is on that question and asked us about what we think about you and me being incredible global diplomatic experts, of course, and certainly not taking hot takes in our own podcast. And just, But we do read and we do, and we have had some experience in these areas. Um, George was asking about how we see the role of China, Pakistan and Russia playing out. Now, I dealt with that, George, last week in the with a collection of stories in the spin-off thing that I do, which I'll put up on this site now. But I think it is there is going to be a lot, there is already a lot of scrambling around to try and secure some kind of diplomatic connection and almost a sort of coalition collection connection in order to negotiate with the Taliban. And Vladimir Putin's been saying this week that he can see a kind of coalition assembling between China, Russia, Pakistan, and Iran to compel, urge, negotiate with the uh, Taliban to be somewhat less disruptive than they have been in the past. 
while still not literally interfering in there. I think you'll see that um, Turkey is also likely to be heavily involved in that and Qatar. And in a weird kind of way, Turkey is a bit of a proxy for Qatar, because if you remember, Turkey was the only other country in the region that supported Qatar in its fight with the, with the Saudi Arabians. And so there's going to be some very interesting alliances. I, I was also, I, Pakistan um, always likes to play the victim in this, in this. And there is a very good book called Directorate S by Steve Cole, which details in brutal fashion the extent to which the Pakistani security service, the ISI, really was behind the protection, gestation and support of the Taliban for many years. And of course, probably knew and protected Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, which is a, a military town equivalent to um, West Point. Or yeah, that will, that will be interesting how the Chinese <laughs> work together with Pakistan to do what they want to do there, because they're licking their lips a bit. There's a trillion dollars worth of uh, raw materials, various precious metals. Mm. That always comes up. There's always those stories about, remember how Cheney had that connection to the US company Halliburton, and it was always said that he was after the resources of Afghanistan. It, it may have them, but they're not, they're not easy to get. But <laughs> I, I, I was really struck, the Guardian did a very good interview today with the uh, former national security advisor of Pakistan. And he, again, was running this kind of victimhood thing, that it's Pakistan that's going to suffer from this. And I, I just think that the, the Pakistani role in the last 20 years has not been reliable, solid or good and has deeply undermined any of the Western efforts to stabilise Afghanistan and certainly to do things like building a democratic state next to Pakistan, which, of course, is a democracy. But I don't think you can necessarily argue that Pakistan supported the growth of, of a mature democracy on its border. No. So that's the rest of the world dominated by <laughs> Afghanistan. Anything else? One other, one other Afghan story, and it's because they're basically a bunch of... The, the last couple of governments have been a bunch of ratbags, and The Economist has an excellent piece today about how they've all, or tend, to wash up in the United Arab Emirates, usually living in somewhere like the Palm or the world, with money that they've funneled out. And I, it was no surprise to me that Ashraf Ghani, the, the, the last president, was, went almost immediately to, to Dubai... Uh, or the UAE. And it was said, I think probably wrongly, that he had had vast amounts of cash with him. One of his predecessors, uh, not, not as president, but uh, Ahmad Zia Massoud flew to Dubai from Afghanistan with $52 million in cash. You know, yeah, exactly. Wait, it was, you know, would you like to keep, check in that container? That'll, that'll keep you yes. going, that'll keep you going uh, a while. And of course, Musharraf, the former military dictator of Pakistan, lives in, lives in the UAE as well. It's a fantastic centre for ne'er-do-wells, money launderers and crooks. Yeah, increasingly money laundering is a really big, not just diplomatic, it's a technological and business issue. And you can see with the dissatisfaction about how all of this printed money has flowed around the world, often into the hands of people who don't deserve it, who are then screwing it away in the likes of Switzerland, Dubai, the Cayman Islands, um, used to be the Cook Islands, uh, Vanuatu, places like that. I think increasingly the world's financial system becomes mostly about cordoning off the good guys, if you like, or the, in theory, legal parts of the world from the unsavoury parts of the world. How will New Zealand manage that, Bernard, since it was completely implicated in the Panama Papers for its trust Absolutely, law? yeah. Which you had a, a role in um, bringing to light with you, with one of your previous... I did, um, yeah. ...editors' jobs. And it was just, I think we've said this before, and there'll be people on the call, I'm sorry, who've heard this before, but it was really interesting the way the person who was responsible for the dissemination of that information from Mossack Fonseca, the only world leader who was mentioned in his manifesto of justification was John Key. 
Yeah, he wanted so to when turn New Zealand into the Switzerland. The South yeah, Pacific. which he which he did to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Now, but just there's another other... sorry, another story that came up this week that I should mention because we yeah. have mentioned it before was was one of your favourites, which is the Havana syndrome, mm. which is this mysterious condition that particularly U.S. diplomats, officials, and security people have been affected by around the world, but starting in Havana and Cuba. And this week, Kamala Harris had to postpone or slow postpone departing Singapore for Vietnam because somebody had been affected by it in Hanoi. It's not the first time there's been a case of this in Hanoi, but it's very interesting that this is, has spread so much from, excuse me, from Cuba, the, London, it's been reported, and even inside the ellipse, but where the White House sits in Washington. And there's some fantastic reporting on this in the Atlantic. Oh, sorry, in the New Yorker by a guy called Adam Entus. I'll put this up on the thing. What? I mean, has anyone really got to the bottom of it? Is it some no. sort of weird brain ray? Or... The, sus- the suspicion is that, uh, that is that in the Cold War, um, the Soviet Union had extremely good, <laughs> but, but <clears throat> just in the same way as you probably wouldn't want to stand too long next to a Russian microwave of that era, that some of their methods for listening may have been a little bit brain frying as well. And I think that this is the assumption that is carried in that story in the, in the New Yorker, that it's actually probably a way of trying to intercept communications. So there are various rather cunning ways to pick up people's mobile phone conversations from inside buildings and that kind of thing. No, but no it, wonder it's the Russian spies who are spreading the, the uh, rumours about 5G. They probably... Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this makes, this makes 5G look yeah, not nearly as bad. It, just, it really looks like a brain fry, yeah. Just before we jump to the whales, <laughs> one question from Julian. I've got, I've got, oh, two, I've got two skateboarding dogs oh, stories good. today. And this, sadly, is none of those weird American political stories, but that actually might turn out to be true. Julian's asking about Larry Elder. This is the talk show Republican candidate for California's governorship who might accidentally become the governor with very little support because of this crazy recall election for mm. Gavin Newsom, the Democrat, who at the moment looks, you know, quite possibly will lose. And the rules mm. say if he loses, then the next guy on the list gets in. And it would be this Larry Elder, who's the sort of out there version of Trump who had no one had heard of until mm. about three weeks ago. And now he's got a real chance of getting in. Yeah, in a place that's also had Arnold Schwarzenegger as as governor, then weirder things have happened. Of course, it's amazing how sensible Arnold Schwarzenegger looks now. Bring back Annie. Yeah, will be back. Skateboarding dog. So one skateboarding dog is literally about, it's not a skateboarding dog, it's a biting dog, which is uh, Judicial Watch reported today in the US that the Secret Service has been, records show that Biden's uh, dog, Major, has repeatedly bitten Secret Service personnel. One email notes that at the current rate, an agent has agent or officer has been bitten every day this week, causing damage to a tire or bruising punctures on the, on the skin. This, the, the dog is the pooch is going to get it at some point from one of these security guard guys. And the other story that we were talking about, Bernard, is this potentially rather beautiful story about blue whales returning to the Spanish Atlantic coast, to the northern Atlantic coast of Spain around Galicia. They were hunted to extinction there uh, more than 40 years ago. There were at least 12 hunting stations on that coast. And several blue whales have been sighted in the past two years along that coast. And in the last couple of weeks, there was another one there, which the Guardian reported. And one of the things that's been researched with these is that they may have a kind of uh, generational generational memory of the places their, their antecedents used to go. Unfortunately, there's also a potentially a climate change aspect, which is that there's a suggestion that as they're, they, they apparently blue whales don't go south of the equator. 
And so there's a suggestion that there is warmer water moving up to the north and that the, and of course this all fits with the whole disruption of the Gulf Stream and so on, and that it's possible that their area of food resources is getting smaller. So I, I, let's just, I think we could try to see this as a positive story about rather amazing blue whales returning to the coast of Spain, but there may be an underlying risk as well. And on the um, climate change uh, front, we always like to get one or two stories in there every week. There's this talk of a big blob of warm water mm. in the ocean between New Zealand and Australia, which I think we'll find. In- it's between New Zealand and Chile. Oh, that's it's right. To the, it's to the east of New Zealand. It moved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's and, a different uh, kind of blob between exactly. them. Exactly. Yes, this is the rest. Yeah. yeah, we'll pop that link on. That's from Newsroom from Memory. That's quite an interesting story. And and just before we go, any questions, we'd love to um, hear from you. If you've got any more questions you want to throw in there. Oh, uh, there's a question somebody's, there. Sorry, you got it? Kane from Kane? Yeah, uh, Kane's asking about the infrastructure bill, which looks like it's finally gone through the US Congress this week. You never quite know with the Americans. And that's great news. It's about $2.5 trillion, which is around 10% of US GDP. It's going to take a long time to get through. So in reality, it's actually not much larger than the infrastructure spending we're doing at the moment. I don't think it's going to um, influence things here much because, unfortunately, the government remains enthralled to the idea and is following the law actually which is the public finance act which forces the government to run surpluses at all times except for extreme circumstances and therefore have very low debt whereas right now we should be using our balance sheet to solve some of our is that Cullen or, or, or Douglas Bernard yeah, um, the Public Finance Act is 1989, and it's one of those three or four cr- crucial bits of New Zealand's economic social infrastructure put in place that year, which has had, I think, extraordinarily damaging effects and is basically still unquestioned by both major parties. And it's interesting how a piece of law you know, written by a Treasury official in 1988, driven by this obsession with getting New Zealand's debt down because inflation was out of control and you needed to take the spending levers out of the hands of nasty politicians, mm. how effective that was and has been for 30 years to control New Zealand's government debt. Now, actually, I think that's meant that we have underinvested heavily in infrastructure and just as in any business or organisation, when you don't keep repairing the roof, eventually it falls mm. in on you. And in effect, that's what's happened. Some commentators even describe that as intergenerational theft, don't they? Absolutely. Me. Yeah. <laughs> that is exactly the case, because that generation <laughs> who've been um, voting for politicians uh, since 1989 and who are largely still the median voter able to uh, call the shots, essentially decided collectively that they preferred tax cuts and preferred not to spend today's income on tomorrow's infrastructure, but spend today's income on today's spending. And they collectively dragged the collective tax rate of New Zealand down from around about 50% to around about 30%, made sure that wealth and income were were not taxed. And in that process, capturing the gains from big rises in asset values because of lower interest rates, and also just not investing in infrastructure so we didn't have the supply to deal with the sharply growing population, not only did they choose not to invest in the infrastructure and have instead low taxes, they also chose to welcome in about a million temporary workers over the last decade. Sorry, I've just got Mike Hosking coming in in now. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Too many. I actually don't know whether Mike Hosking is verbalizers on immigration. Oh, no, he's, he's on the side of the keep debt down. Mm. Otherwise, the interest rate <laughs> on any debt he might have would go up. And mm-hmm. the, as with everyone, the price of people's houses would go down. What's the, what's the, what's your take on that sort of mini tiff that we may, maybe you only see if you're on Twitter? about Rodney Jones warning earlier this week that the numbers were not so great on COVID and that they were of deep concern and him getting in trouble with Susie Wiles and various other rather remarkable people for being an economist. He was being dismissed for being one of the most successful economists and investors I've ever come across. Yeah, I'm really disappointed to, to hear that because Rodney Jones was absolutely crucial in that third week of March in ensuring that there was and across the board acceptance of the need to go hard and fast on the lockdowns. Mm. That was the right decision then. Um, He had been warning the government behind the scenes since February about the extreme danger coming out of China and really in very direct language Mm -hmm. saying to the government it needed to lock down hard and early and saying it well before many of the officials. Now, So economists um, do have a role. Yeah, yeah. Not, it's no, not I mean, just a dismal science. Exactly. And he is a, a, a very serious modeler, had yeah. been very closely connected to, to China, had lived there and mm-hmm. a speaker, and he knows where the bodies are buried and um, when they've been dug up in the wrong place in China. Mm-hmm. And he was telling people we should get him at on. the very highest level. He is excellent. And also he was an advisor to the uh, Skeg report. So it's not like he's some sort of guy off in the watts yeah. who's come out with a, <clears throat> with a wild statement. He's a very... Serious character who the government's uh, respected and invited in and no doubt taken a lot of free labour from over the years. It's disappointing. I think, unfortunately, there is a bit of a culture war thing going on with this debate about the elimination where mm. a bunch of people mm. go, particularly on Twitter, which it's very prone to, I'm in my camp, you're in yours, you're wrong, I'm right, take that. Because I'm big and you're small. Yeah. Mrs. Trunchbull. Um, yeah, exactly. There is a there is an element of, sorry. Yeah. There is an element of trying to shut people up, which is disappointing because in the end they'll shut up and then you won't hear about it and we'll yeah. have this horrible situation where politicians and the people who actually have to make those hard calls make a call and then someone says, Hang on a minute, didn't someone tell you about that? Oh mm. no. And so you do need those outside voices being able to be heard at the top table. And I, I hope this doesn't um, discourage Rodney too much. And uh, I haven't seen the details of the in public, but I think... I'll, I'll, I'll ask him. Right. Yeah. Thank you very um, much. For yeah. that. We're all epidemiologists uh, now, and we're all economists, and you and I are all... So that just makes us bloody noisy pundits. Does everybody, anybody got any further things they want to ask us or address? And we'd love your feedback, please, because I, I do get worried sometimes that we are just sitting here blaring at each other and we can do that without you, without bothering you if you want to. But I know there's been some great questions today and uh, it's really good to see that we've had over 30 attendees for most of the hour on a day which must be a lot pretty busy for people. Maybe we should t- keep doing this, keep, just keep lockdown and start charging for this and because it'll be lockdown sustenance for people. We could have a pub quiz on Friday evenings. That would be a good. That's actually a really good idea mm-hmm. with questions mm-hmm. from the week's versions yep. of the carcass. Yep. Oh, you've given me a, you've given me some something to work on there. Peter. Yet again. Yeah. No, this is this is great. I actually love that idea because you can do in Zoom these, yes, you know, um, I know. quizzes. Yep, yep. Yep. Quizzes. Absolutely. That's a fantastic idea. Yeah. Wow. This is this is um, yeah, and you gold. haven't got nearly enough work to do late on a Thursday. It's I've got to have more fun. I've got to have more fun. 
run of my life. And actually, I've been really keen to design a quiz for the political economy rather than just taking one of those things out of the books. That yeah, you know, the difficult get. thing about a pub quiz is that right now under lockdown, I absolutely do not need to to drink anymore. I've <laughs> I've, I've already got half a liter of vodka here that I'm. <laughs> yeah no, no i really enjoy these afternoon chats and thank you very much for coming in it's been great to have you in there come with your questions next time and we shall see you all again that has been a hoon uh, of new zealand over the horizon with peter bale and bernard hickey on the kaka thanks bernard. Anoa, see you. everyone